minds to your greatness and teach us how to be your children, we pray. Amen. So today we're going to, um, I know we said we were going to get through Elijah and then we were going to wrap up the Old Testament in a summary and then we're going to go to the New Testament. Um, it, it's happening that way, but we're having a little bit of a detour again, which you should be used to by now. We've been doing this Old Testament for about two years now, going through it. And so this morning, we're going to actually start looking at a, the, the follower of Elijah. We're going to look at Elisha. And over the last couple weeks, David is taking us through a whirlwind tour of Elijah. That's a pun. And um, Elijah's ministry was spectacular. It really was. Elijah was one of those guys that everything was big. Everything was dramatic. Um, the confrontation, the depression, his encounters with God, his miracles, even the way he left this earth was just like big, bold statements. I mean, he's one of those personalities you just don't miss. But along the way, while Elijah was having his conversations with God, God gave him a command to find this man, Elisha, and have Elisha take his place later on. We, this happens on Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, which is where Elijah was meeting with God. And in 1 Kings 19.16, we read this. Anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as prophet. So he's given a command to find somebody and make him king and then to find this guy, Elisha, and anoint him to take his place. Well, that's probably a little bit sobering news for Elijah. You know, you're not going to be around on this earth forever, so you have to have somebody replace you. And he tells him to find this guy, Elisha. So let's start out just by talking about their names. David brought up some names. Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. That's what Elijah's name means. My God is Yahweh. All right. When you look at the ministry of Elijah, you can see that much of his ministry was designed to point people to Yahweh, to God, to make them see God. Remember, that's why he confronted the prophets of Baal and why he confronted the whole nation of Israel and said, who are you going to serve? Who is your God? And his purpose of his ministry was to prove to people that God, that Yahweh is the God. So that was the first name. The second name is Elisha. And Elisha's name means God is salvation. And I believe what you're going to see as we study Elisha is that much of his ministry is going to be bringing about life and help to people to show them the salvation of God. Not just the power of God like Elijah did, but the salvation of God. So God selected Elisha to pick up the prophetic ministry of Elijah when he, where we'd leave off. And so Elijah left the mountain and did what God commanded. So we're going to read together uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. And then we're going to jump to 2 Kings. So 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 19. And I'm going to read in the New Living Translation um, because it's fun when you're doing narrative to read uh, in the New Living Translation. So Elijah went out and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing the field. Now there were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there 
ran after Elijah and said to him, First, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen, and he slaughtered them. And he used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh, and he passed the meat around to the townspeople, and they all ate. And then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Now there's just some fun stuff in there. Like Elijah just throws the cloak on him and walks away. You don't have any dialogue or anything. It wasn't like when Jesus called his disciples and he said, come, follow me. Elijah, Elijah's just like, here. And he just takes off. And then what does Elisha do? He just leaves his oxen. And could you picture that field? I mean, think about it. That's, you don't just leave a team of oxen in the field, but he does, and he goes after him. But what I really want us to focus on in this passage is the calling of Elisha. I want us to notice a few things. First of all, I want you to understand that Elisha came from a wealthy family. You don't have 12 teams of oxen if you're poor, okay? 12 teams of oxen is a lot. He came from a very wealthy family. Um, that means that for Elisha to follow Elijah was for him to give up a life of comfort, a life of prosperity, to become like Elijah in wandering from town to town and not even having his own permanent place to stay. Well, while not always the case, God may ask any of his followers to be willing to give up some of the luxuries of this life to follow him. And we definitely see that in Elisha's life. This is the opposite of what we hear taught a lot in today's culture, which is prosperity theology. Prosperity theology says God wants you to be rich. He wants you to have this. He wants you to have stuff, possessions, money, because he wants to bless you with those things. But what I find over and over again is often the call of God comes with sacrifice. Not everybody, but often. And not that there's anything wrong with riches. God may choose to give somebody riches to use those to bless others. And we see that throughout the scriptures too. But God may also choose to ask us to give up certain things in this world to follow him. Now on a side note, I like geeking out over little details like numbers. There were 12 teams of oxen. I don't know if there's any significance that there were 12 teams and there were 12 tribes of Israel and all that kind of stuff. But all the way throughout the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, you're going to find the number 3, the number 7, the number 10, the number 40, and the number 12. And if you just enjoy stuff like that, just read through their stories and start writing down notes anytime you see those numbers and just see if you can find any significance. Don't read too much into it, but it's fun sometimes to take those connections and have some fun with it. I, don't, I didn't find any significance in this case that it was the last of the 12, like coming from the last tribe or anything like that. But the number 12 was still brought out, and it's going to come out later on as well. Um, so first thing, Elisha came from a wealthy family. Uh, the second thing I want you to realize is that Elisha was not wrong. He didn't do anything wrong in asking to go back and say goodbye to his family. And, and a lot of people that I talked to about this passage and a lot of commentaries that I read said this was, this was bad that he went back. And, and it's really, it's not. And I think the reason that we think it's bad is because of an encounter Jesus had with somebody in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross over to the other side of the lake. 
And one of the teachers of religious law said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. Another of his disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. In Jesus' encounter, there was a rebuke. If you're going to follow me, come follow me. Don't, don't go back to those things. Um, however, Elijah seems to expect that Elisha will go back, almost as if it's the proper thing to do, because it really is. And there's no rebuke here. And he goes back and he offers up a, a great meal, which is the last thing I want you to realize, is that Elisha was committed. So any of you mechanics, any of you like consider yourself mechanics, if you wanted to never become a mechanic again, what would you do? Well, right? You, you get rid of all your tools, right? Because it's really hard to fix things if you don't have tools. And I remember when I, I used to have a computer business, and I got rid of all of my tools when I closed down that business because I wanted to be ignorant of those things, and I didn't want to do it anymore. And, and when some people would say, hey, can you do this? Like, I can't. I got rid of all my tools. So getting rid of your tools is a great way to make sure you can't go back to what you were doing before. Elisha takes the oxen and the plow breaks up the plow, makes a fire, cooks the oxen, and feeds the whole community. You're not going back to that job. First of all, because dad's probably really mad at you for getting rid of the oxen and the plow. But second of all, because you've gotten rid of the tools. You're basically saying, symbolically, I will not return to do this again. He was committed. And I think that those three things are really significant. That sometimes in the call of God, he will ask us to give up certain possessions, to be willing to be uncomfortable even for him. It's okay to realize that you're going to miss certain things in your life, and you may even have to say goodbye to your family. But you have to be committed, and you have to be willing to not look back or to go back once God calls you into his family and into his ministry. My dad told me many times as I was heading off to college that there's three, three things it takes to be a pastor. The call of God, a vow of poverty, and more than a touch of insanity. And I think he was right on all three accounts. I really do. But just because you may not be called to be an elder of the church doesn't mean that God might not call you to some of those same things. All right, so I want to kind of take this passage and pause for a second, and I want to kind of hyperlink some things. Um, something we should note in the life of Elisha, and even in, in this passage, is how many little hyperlinks you're going to find from the life of Elisha to the teachings and miracles of Jesus. For instance, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. What was Jesus saying? You need to be willing to leave that family to follow me. It's a hyperlink. It's, it's kind of a subtle one. It's not like in the words of Elisha, you know, or in the life of Elisha. Um, Luke chapter 14, 33 you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Um, 
Luke chapter 9 is a fun one. If you want to flip over to there or tap over to there, it's a fun one to look at. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. We read a little bit of this, but I want you to catch the whole passage and then the ending of it. Luke 9, 57. And as they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Verse 59, he said to another person, come and follow me. And the man agreed, but said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Verse 61, and another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said to him, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. So you have the same message, but there's this interesting little twist on the end, right? Elisha actually burns his plow so he can't go back. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to take up the plow, basically to till up the soil and plant the seeds of the kingdom, you can't look back. So he uses the plow as an illustration of something we should be doing where Elisha is like burns his plow and, is, and eats, the, eats the oxen. But it's really fun to look at all the different ways Jesus hyperlinks back to Elisha. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple weeks. Um, Elisha, by the way, is only mentioned by name once in the New Testament. Elijah many times. Elisha only once, and that's in Luke 4.27 if you want to look it up later on. But though Elisha is not referenced by name, he's hyperlinked back to all the time. All the time. So after this calling, after Elijah comes up and throws his cloak on him and walks away, and Elisha goes back and creates a big feast for the community and then follows Elijah off, we don't have anything written about Elijah, Elisha for about eight years just silence. Until we come to 2 Kings chapter 2. There's an event that's so significant that it actually is an event that leads off the second book recording the Chronicles of the Kings. And it's this story of Elijah and Elisha. Now David came at it a little bit from Elijah's perspective. I want to come at it from Elisha's perspective this week of the passing of the mantle and the passing of the spirit of Elijah onto Elisha um, in 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to read that together. So 2 Kings 2, 1 through 8. This is a great story. It's so much fun. Um, it, gets, it gets even more fun and weird. If you like weird stories in the Bible, you want to stick around for Elisha because he is one of those guys that's just full of weird stories. And that's what got me onto this quest of trying to understand more about him because it's like, there's got to be a reason God has him in there, not just to share weird stories. There's something else he symbolizes, and hopefully we'll see that in the weeks to come. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. And Elijah, Elijah said to Elisha, I'm going to mess these up all morning, I know I am. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went down together to Bethel. The group of prophets from Bethel came to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Of course I know, Elisha said, but be quiet about it. 
Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to Jericho. But Elisha replied again, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together to Jericho. And then a group of prophets from Jericho came to Elisha and asked, did you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? Of course I know, Elisha said, but be quiet about it. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has told me to go to the Jordan River. But again, Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I will never leave you. So they went on together. And Fifty men from the group of prophets also went and watched from a distance as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. Then Elijah folded his cloak together, struck the water with it, the river divided, and the two of them went across on dry ground. So we talked about the calling of Elisha. I want to talk about this journey that Elisha is on because this is pretty significant. Bethel is a very important place in the history of Israel. It's a place where God confirmed his covenant with Jacob. So God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. But it was at Bethel in Genesis chapter 28 where God spoke to Jacob and reminded him of this promise in a dream. Genesis 28, 13. I should preface this. Jacob is resting on a journey. He puts his head on a rock. He falls asleep. Sounds really comfortable, doesn't it? And while he's sleeping, he has this dream where God appears to him. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. And the ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. Jump down to verse 16 of Genesis 28. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid, and he said, What an awesome place this is. It's none other than the house of God and the very gateway to heaven. So the next morning, Jacob got up very early, took the stone he had rested his head against, set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it, and he named that place Bethel, which means house of God, although it was previously called Luz. So Bethel was the first place that they went to, and it was the place where God ratified his covenant with Jacob, reminding him of the promise made to Abraham that through their descendants, all of the people of earth, all of the nations of the world would be blessed, meaning that both Jews and Gentiles would be able to have a restored relationship with God because of someone who will come, the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, will come from the line of Abraham and of Jacob. So that was their first stop. The second stop was Jericho. Jericho was the first city conquered by Joshua. Joshua, of course, was the successor to Moses. When the Israelites were in the wilderness and ready to enter the promised land, Moses was not able to enter, and Joshua took the Israelites across the Jordan and into Jericho, and that was their first battle and their first victory. We're going to talk more about uh, Jericho 
next week, so hang on to that thought. Um, Jericho was also assigned, all of the land that was the promised land was assigned to tribes. Joshua, the Jericho, excuse me, was assigned to the tribe of Benjamin. So tuck that away too. The third place they go is the Jordan River. Now this is the place of Joshua's first miracle. Joshua was, again, the successor of Moses, and this is the place where God parted the Jordan River for them to go across on dry ground to enter into the promise. And it was when the, Ark of the, the, the priests that were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they came to the edge of the Jordan, and when they stepped foot in it, the waters parted, and everybody crossed over on dry ground into the promised land. Very significant story. All three of these locations on this journey are intentional. They're historical reference points, not just to geographical places, but to the way that God works, to who God is and what he does in and through his people. You have the promise that God will provide a way for people to be restored to him through the location of Bethel, where the covenant was made. You have the reminder of the way that God will provide and protect through the city of Jericho. And then you also have the reminder of the fact that God is greater than any of creation and all of creation in the parting of the Jordan River. Those are just three things you can take from it, but you could probably come up with three dozen things you could take from those locations. But the fact that this journey took place and that the author of this book said, here's what's going to happen, and they went here, here, and here, was so that you and I and the nation Israel would take their brains back and think about what happened at each of those spots. Oh yeah, God made a promise and he's going to redeem mankind. Oh yeah, God made a promise and he took care of the enemies so that people could enter into that promise. Oh yeah, God proved that he's bigger than any enemy and that bigger than anything in this world and that all of creation exists at his command and, and lives for his command. Those thoughts were meant to flood our mind as it goes back. Now, three times on this journey, not only do they go to three places, three times, Elijah says, Elijah, stay here. And Elijah says, no. Was Elijah being rebellious? How many of you think Elijah maybe was being a little bit rebellious? I mean, shouldn't he have listened to his master and just stayed? Oh, none of you raised your hands. Good for you. You get to leave church today. So Elijah was not being rebellious. To really kind of understand this, you have to kind of go back to some other stories. Can you think of another story where somebody told somebody to stay and they said, no, I will go with you? Ruth. That's right. Now, it wasn't Ruth that said stay. It was Naomi. When Naomi was going back to her homeland and she had two daughters-in-law and that's all that she had left with her for family, and she said to her daughters-in-law, stay here, go back to your families, don't follow me, because God has taken everything away from me, woe is me, um, call me bitter, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Orpah goes back, and Ruth says, no, I will not leave you. And she stays and goes with her. So yeah, you're going to flash back to there. Obviously, you're going to flash back to there, because that's a significant story. However, I think it's significant that it happened three times. Remember I mentioned there's a lot of subtle hyperlinks to the New Testament? Can you think of in the New Testament somebody who was asked to make a commitment three times 
Anybody? Peter. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He said, no, I won't deny you. No, you're going to deny me three times. And he does. But then, then, Jesus went to Peter after his resurrection and said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Okay, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Okay, feed my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Okay, feed my sheep. This is in John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. As if Jesus was doing the same test to Peter that Elijah was doing with Elisha to see if Peter would be willing to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and be committed to him. And when he failed, to show that he could still be restored to do that job. As a matter of fact, we know that just as Elijah passed off his mantle to Elisha, that in a very similar way, I believe, Jesus passed off his mantle to Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, Now you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. What does he mean by that? Well, the church won't be built until Jesus leaves, and Peter is going to pick up the ministry that Jesus started in establishing the church. Jesus was passing off the mantle of establishing the church to Peter. In a very similar way, Elisha is having the ministry of Elijah passed off to him. There's several things that Elijah did not get to finish that Elisha is going to finish. And again, we have this subtle hyperlink from the three times and the three times meant to draw us back to this idea of a ministry that's been started that might look a little bit different, but that's going to be completed by someone that God has appointed. It's pretty cool stuff. As a matter of fact, Peter, after Peter, I shouldn't say after Peter, after Jesus goes back up into heaven and the church is in Acts, um, Peter's confirmed in his ministry with miracles, just like Elijah is was, excuse me, and like Elisha was. He's going to, in Acts chapter 3, he makes a lame man walk, and then in Acts chapter 5, he has a couple people killed, which you're like, what? That's going to happen too with Elisha, but that's a whole other story we have, we're not going to get to yet. But he basically brings a curse on people who lied to God and disrespected God, and that happens in Acts chapter 5. So even Peter's ministry of being the, the mantle bearer after Jesus to build the church is ratified with miracles, just like Elisha's ministry is ratified with miracles. Um, and I believe over the next several weeks, we're going to see many ways in which the life and ministry of Elisha is imitated and, and referenced in the New Testament. So let's go back to Elisha. Sorry. It's, it's nerdy and it's geeky, and I get excited about this stuff. So if I'm, if I'm boring you with these kind of nerdy stuff, I'm sorry, but this is like, when I dove into these passages, I started, I honestly started this series thinking, why on earth did God put Elisha in the Old Testament? Because he's a random dude with weird stuff that doesn't seem to fit in anywhere else. And it's been an amazing week of just wrestling with God over that and trying to figure out why did God put him in here? There's a reason. And now I'm finding Elisha referenced all over the place in the Bible. Um, kind of like when you go to buy a car 
and you go look at one model of car and you never noticed it before, but now you can't help but see that car everywhere you drive. It's like now I'm starting to see Elisha everywhere. It's really cool. So I'm going to kind of nerd out over the next couple of weeks, and I hope you can just be patient with me if you're not like nerding out over it because there's some really neat stuff. Um, so 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. When they came to the other side, it's the other side of the Jordan, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. And Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. Oh, you have asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I'm taken away from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. As they walked along, um, as they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, I see the chariots and charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. Now they stood on the banks of the Jordan River on the other side. I actually have a map. I want to show you a map of this journey. They started in Gilgal. They went to Bethel. From Bethel, they went to Jericho. From Jericho, they went over to the other side of the Jordan. This takes us back to a very symbolic area. This is the place that Joshua's ministry really began. This is the place that launched the beginning of the promised land crusade, if I can call it that, where they entered into the promised land to take possession of what God promised to Abraham when he took his first walking trip around the region. This is the place where the nation is going to be established, and it starts by crossing the Jordan. Notice they went this way first, across the Jordan, outside of the region, and now they're coming back in. They're basically standing, maybe not in the exact spot, but in the same type of location that Joshua was in as he was ready to lead the people back into the promised land. And Elijah is talking to Elisha, and we have these two leaders Elisha's ministry is about to, Elijah's ministry is about to disappear, and Elisha's ministry is about to begin. Now, this again is a flashback in history. This is meant to take you back again um, to Moses and to Joshua. Moses, I believe, is a lot like Elijah, right? Moses' ministry was about signs and wonders to Pharaoh, the parting of the Red Sea, you've striking a rock and water coming out, the ground opening up and swallowing people. Moses had his high points and his low points. At one point, he's like, God, just take them. I don't want to deal with them anymore. They're yours. They're not my people. And then on the other side, we have Moses saying, God, don't wipe them out. Take my life if you need to, but spare them. Moses was a man of highs and lows and of flashy ministry with just miracles everywhere, that was Elijah. And during the majority of Moses' ministry, when he went up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God in the first place, there's one man who went with him as his servant, and that was Joshua. And when they set up the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, while all of Israel was doing everything else, there's one man who served at the tent of meeting and waited there and ministered to Moses and that was Joshua. And you have very little about Joshua's life until it's time for him to take leadership and cross the Jordan River. Joshua and Elisha are very similar. 
Elisha is a much quieter leader who works among the people, finishing the work that their mentors have passed on to them. And just like Joshua was very quiet in the background until he came into leadership, Elisha is very quiet in the background until he comes into leadership. And you have this great leader that everybody looks at like, wow, there's nobody, none of the prophets like Elijah. There's none of the leaders like Moses. Nobody says that about Joshua or Elisha, but their role is very significant. So there's some interesting commonalities between the lives of Moses and Joshua and those of Elijah and Elisha. Though Moses was considered a prophet, um, and Elijah was considered a prophet, Elisha was considered a prophet, but Joshua, he wasn't. So I guess that's one of the weird things about the parallel there. Um, So Moses also spoke directly with God, right, on the mountain. And where did Elijah go to speak to God? on the same mountain, had an encounter with God. God showed up in fire and thunder, but he wasn't, his voice wasn't there. It was the whisper. So David reminded us that God spoke to different people differently, but both of those men were up on the mountain talking to God. Um, I think that there's just some great, great analogies here. That Elijah's ministry and Elisha's ministry are very similar as prophets to the role of Moses and Joshua in leading the people physically. As Moses brought people out of Egypt, his goal was to teach them about Yahweh and who this God is because they had been 400 plus years in slavery. They didn't know Yahweh. And the miracles that Moses performed were to draw people to God so they could learn who he is. But then the ministry of Joshua was about helping them understand all of what God was doing for them and leading them and taking them into that promised land and providing for them and the salvation that God had provided through all of it. Cool, nerdy stuff. Sorry. All right, so in both cases, you have the passing of leadership verified by the parting of the Jordan River. When Joshua received the command from Moses, his first miracle was to cross the Jordan River. The waters parted. They went through on dry ground. They set up a memorial. In this case, you have Elijah, Elisha, taking the leadership from Elijah, and he goes over to the Jordan River, and he's going to actually part the waters and cross over. Uh, Joshua 3, verse 7, the Lord told Joshua, Today I will begin to make you a great leader in the eyes of all the Israelites. They will know that I am with you, just as I was with Moses. And it was the harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing at its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that that point began backing up a great distance all the way to the town called Adam, which is near Zarethan. And the water below that point flowed to the Dead Sea until the riverbed was dry, and all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 13 through 15 says this, Elisha picked up the mantle that had fallen off Elijah, and he went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan, And he took the mantle Elijah had dropped and he struck the water and he said, where is Yahweh of Elijah? Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And he struck the water himself and it parted to the right and to the left and Elisha crossed over. And when the sons of the prophet of Jericho who were observing saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down to the ground in front of him. So just as the command God told Joshua, I'm going to have people, um, I'm going to raise you up in people's eyes because I'm going to do miracles and prove to the people around you 
that my spirit is with you the way that it was with Moses. God does the same thing with Elisha. And when he crosses the ground, the prophets come and see that the spirit is on Elisha. And they recognize that. Cool stuff. So why the Jordan River of all places? Um, well, it's not just the historical fact of Moses and Joshua. It's not just going back to that story. It's not only there. It's not just the entrance into the promised land. Part of it, I think, has to do with what waters and symbolize in Scripture. Um, often they're referred to as chaotic waters. So you have the, the Red Sea, the Jordan, the flood. In, in the beginning of creation, you have the, the chaos that covered the earth and, and the waters there. Um, water represents often death, where ground represents life. And walking through the water on dry ground is a symbol of being protected from death and experiencing life. And Elisha's ministry is one that's going to bring life to those who listen and obey. The Jordan River becomes then a symbol of baptism later on in scriptures. In the New Testament, there's this guy named John the Baptist, right? And where is he baptizing people? At the Jordan River. Speaking of John, I want to talk about him for just a second because there's a New Testament parallel. I've taken you from Elijah and Elisha back to Moses and Joshua, but you also have to take this and flip it forward so that you can start to see the pattern that emerges from Joshua, from Moses and Joshua to Elijah and Elisha. We get to the New Testament, and I want you to hear what's said about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. The angel of God appears to Zechariah, John's dad. John's not born yet, but he will be. And he says this to him in Luke chapter 1, verse 16, that this child that's born to you will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah, he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. So John the Baptist is often, by the biblical authors, connected back to Elijah. And Elijah's ministry was the same as what John's is, to turn people back to God. Elijah's name, Yahweh is God. Or my God is Yahweh. His ministry was to point people to God. And John the Baptist's ministry would be exactly the same. Um, in verse 17, it says that he'll prepare the people for the coming of the Lord, or for who's coming after him. And the one coming after John is who? Jesus, right? Who came after Elijah? Elisha. It's really nerdy. It's really cool. But what I'm seeing in the life of Elisha is glimpses into who the Messiah is and what the Messiah's ministry was meant to be. Through the life of a man who does bizarre things that don't seem to make sense, and yet they all, not all, many of them point to the one who's yet to come. And just as John the Baptist would be then connected to Elijah in his ministry, Jesus 
is connected to Elisha, or Elisha, I guess to say it properly in, in, in respect, Elisha therefore is connected to Jesus. It's so nerdy and cool. At least I think so. The ministry of Elisha is meant to be pointers to the man who is the Messiah and what the Messiah will do. Elisha is not the Messiah, but much of his story points to the Messiah. And Elisha is a confusing character, okay? When you read about his life and ministry, it does seem very random, but I believe that God's word is not random. And if Elisha's in there, then there's a reason for Elisha being in there. It's not just so we have cool stories about bears. Yes, there's stories about bears. And I'm going to have to share some other bear stories maybe when I share that one. I don't know. Right? Elijah was a type of John the Baptist. And if Elijah was a type of John the Baptist, then we should ask ourselves the question, how is Elisha a type of Christ? And I think it's a fun one to do. And an exercise we're going to have over the next couple of weeks. So I want to pause right here in our journey with Elijah because I want us to, um, to look next week, Lord willing, at some of the miracles, at some of the things that, he, that took place, the journeys that he had, and see how they connect to the New Testament and how they take the story of Joshua and the Promised Land and connect to what's happening in Israel at that time and then also what's going, going to happen when Jesus shows up on the scene later on and see if we can draw some parallels between them so you can see how God's story is one big story that's connected and it, it's the same message going forward each time and every single time is pointing to the fact that on our own, we can't do it. But God provides a way. God has always provided a way and he provided a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Theologically, I hope we're in for a treat over the next couple weeks. Um, it's going to be a little nerdy, but it should be fun. Um, however, in practical application, I think this morning, just a couple things that you and I can take away, other than just how amazing God's word is and how it's all connected. Um, over the past couple weeks, David reminded us that God speaks to people differently. When you looked at the way God spoke with Moses and God spoke to Elijah, um, today, we're reminded that God calls people in different ways. We don't know how Elijah was really called, but we do know how Elisha was called. Um, we also don't know much about... Um, well, today, and today, we're reminded that, that even servants or wealthy people can be called by God to do his work. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see that each person has a ministry. And just like Elijah's ministry was different from Elisha's and Joshua's ministry was different from Moses's, they're all part of a bigger ministry. They're all part of a bigger mission that God has. And I'm hoping that over the next few weeks, we'll see that each person's ministry will look different. But regardless of how, people, how God speaks to people, or what people's specific ministry is, or what people's personality is, or how God uses people, it's my hope that you'll realize even today that when God calls you to himself, when God calls you to be a part of his family, he calls you to be willing to give up the things of this world to live for something bigger. He calls you to be willing to, to love him more than you love even your own family and to be committed to him wholeheartedly, not going back to the things that you used to do, but living for him and not looking back, realizing that the life he's created for you is the life worth living. 
what a privilege it is to be selected by God to be on his mission. What an amazing privilege it is to have him pick us to take his message to the world around us. And may God give us the power through his spirit to give up the things of this world that will keep us from accomplishing his mission and give us the boldness we need to proclaim his truth to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your ministry. We thank you for your mission. Father, we, we can even talk to you today and pray to you today because of the fact that you have cared from the very beginning about us having a relationship with you. And we thank you for declaring who you are and providing a way of salvation for us to come to you. And we pray that you will help us to be good uh, image bearers for you, that we would understand the mission we have, that we would count the cost and be willing to follow you so that you can receive the honor and you can receive the glory and we can see people reconciled to you for your name, for your kingdom, we pray. Amen. So after the... Um, if you want to read Second Kings, it would be a great idea to do so. You'll probably have some questions about Elisha when you do that. I will tell you that the events in Second Kings are not necessarily in chronological order. They're grouped together by events that are similar, but not in chronological order. So just be aware of that. It's not like step A, B, C, he did this and this and this. It's going to be a little bit weird. But I want to encourage you to do it. And as you're doing it, I want you to think, what does this remind me of in the teaching and life of Jesus, if anything? Don't go too crazy with it, but have some fun reading it and see what you can come up with. And Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we'll see some of those things together. Um, as we wrap up our time today, we do want to have uh, some prayer for some specific prayer requests. If you have your bulletin, you'll see them on the right-hand side. Um, the Karstens, as far as I know, all got on their flight and got out okay. So they are, they are in the process of trying to settle in Germany, and they would appreciate your prayers. Uh, Ken, <laughs> the Earnshaw family, it's good to have you guys back. Welcome back. Um, Ken was supposed to be home around now, and they're sending him somewhere else, so we're just praying that they send him home soon at some point. Um, so I'm, I know that we miss him, and I'm sure his family misses him a whole lot more yet. And so when we continue to pray for the uh, Earnshaw family, um, Adirondack Community Church is one, is one of our sister churches. They are in Newton Falls, and Pastor Dave Downey is the, is the pastor there. Um, they live in a very um, challenging area. It's very economically depressed up in that region. It used to be a big paper mill lumber region, and it's not anymore. So there's uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of struggles with even just uh, surviving day to day and making ends meet. So definitely want to be praying for them. They're, they have many ministries throughout the summer usually where they do things to help their community, and they were not basically able to do those over the last year because of COVID. So they're super excited to be able to do some of those things this year, and uh, we want to be praying for them. And then Paul Frizzell is a missionary uh, with Baptist Bible Fellowship, and he is serving in Tarija, Bolivia, which is actually the town that David Steltz was born in, believe it or not. And uh, we got a chance several years ago to, down, to go down and visit his ministry, and he basically is um, helping to support and train local Bolivian pastors and start new churches in that region, and it's a great ministry that they're doing. They also have a summer camp ministry, and their summer camp runs around our Christmas time because that's summer for them. 
Um, but there's a great ministry for reaching out to the kids. They, we are spoiled in America, I guess I'll say. Um, one of the church plants we went to was a little tiny storefront. And you know those plastic chairs that you use in your lawn? That's, that's their church chairs. And you, set, you, you just grab your chair and you set it up. And those, you know, they're kind of wobbly when you sit in them and everything. But that's their church chairs. They don't have these nice cushioned chairs like we have. And this one particular town we were in, they were in a storefront. And if you just went a building down and down the side road, you were in shantytown. So people living in little tin huts, living in paper boxes, whatever they could find. It was that kind of poverty in that whole region. So something as simple as making a meal or, or something like that for their community, it was just a huge, huge outreach and, and blessing to them. Uh, so Paul is involved in, in working with those churches and investing in those uh, pastors that are down there. So we want to pray for them. So why don't we um, stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer for these things and then you're welcome to greet each other, hang out, and, uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. Father, again, we are thankful that we can come before you and we lift up to you these requests that we have. Uh, we thank you again for the time we've had with the Karsten family and we thank you for the journey that they are on um, today to even find... Uh, the, the church that you would call them to serve in and to uh, become part of their fellowship in Germany. We pray that you would give them uh, just clarity of where you want them to be and that you'd continue to uh, guide them in the neighborhoods they should be in and the people that, they, that you want them to connect with to share your good news with. And we thank you for safety for them uh, during their travels. Uh, Father, we thank you for the Earnshaws and uh, thank you that they could be with us today. We pray for Ken as he uh, gets ready to head off to his next location that you would uh, protect him during his travels. Father, we also uh, thank you for his willingness to serve and his positive attitude um, about the fact that this is why he signed up. But also, Father, we know that his heart is to be here uh, with his family as well and pray that you would um, provide a timeline for him and a, a chance for him to get back and be reunited with his family soon. Pray for strength uh, for Hannah and the kids and just that you would help them through this time um, as they definitely miss uh, an important part of their family. We thank you for Adirondack Community Church and Pastor Dave Downey and his ministry. Pray that you would bless them as they reach out to their community. Show them how they can continue to meet needs. And Father, give them opportunities to share the good news uh, with the families that are surrounding them. And we thank you for Paul Frizzell and his ministry and the faithful, the years of faithful service he's put in. Pray that you would continue to give him wisdom uh, to train up pastors, um, the, just, Lord, the insight to know how to support them and encourage them. And Father, that you would grant those churches success, uh, not from a financial perspective necessarily, but Father, that you would grant them success in seeing your kingdom established in the country of Bolivia. We thank you for your love, Father. We thank you for bringing us here and look forward to how you want to use us in the week ahead. Amen. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, God bless you. Have a great day.